Support for the Legislative Gazette comes from New York State United Teachers, working to support students, educators, and public schools as the center of their communities with Public Schools Unite Us initiative and United University Professions, representing 37,000 academic and professional employees at SUNY campuses and teaching hospitals across New York State. Frederick E. Cole, President, UUPinfo.org. A bill that has been sent to Governor Kathy Hochul would exempt income from poll workers from being counted toward the cap on school tax relief or STAR benefits in New York. The Legislative Gazette's Alexander Babby reports. Democratic State Assemblyman John McDonald says the bill would help the state alleviate a shortage of poll workers ahead of November's elections. Speaking in Lansingburg in his 108th district, McDonald says the impetus for the bill was speaking with a poll worker last year. He said, here's the problem. Although they don't pay us a lot each day, when you add in an additional 10 days of work, unfortunately, my income now exceeds the eligibility standard for the STAR exemption. For senior citizens to qualify for a STAR benefit, their income must remain below $58,400. State Senator Jake Ashby of the 43rd District applauds the measure. At a time when you know many people have questions about the process and we see it Uh, a decline in many areas of participation, this bill would provide an incentive to do that. In New York, as we all know, struggles with affordability uh, across different segments of our population. This bill would help with that. Fellow Republican and Rensselaer County Executive Steve McLaughlin says he hopes it boosts poll work enrollment. Almost every time they're going to be retired folks, right, who have the time to take that 15-hour day, and, and we need them. They're hard to find. We want to encourage more of that. Deputy Mayor Chris Nolan says the shortage is also affecting the Collar City. This is a common-sense idea that's going to help us attract and retain all of those individuals that are going to work hard at the polls. Uh, it's a lot harder now with uh, not just working on the election day, but doing early voting. Kathleen McGrath, a spokesperson for the State Board of Elections, tells WMC the board can't comment on pending legislation, but added 2024 will be a challenge. So far for 2023 elections coming up next month, uh, Counties in the capital region have done well uh, and across the state to recruit poll workers. There's certainly always room to to get more in. We always want more poll workers, but we do encourage those that are looking to be poll workers next month to do so as soon as possible because they do need to be trained prior to um, early voting and then Election Day. McGrath says age is always a concern when it comes to staffing polling places. In New York State right now, more than half of all poll workers are over the age of 60. Um, so it does tend to be an older population. Um, one of the things that we are concerned with moving into 2024 is that we will have three elections. We will have a presidential primary in April and then the state and local primary in June and the general election in November. So that's three elections. Um, all three have 10 days of early voting before them. Shirley Buell, co-president of the Rensselaer County chapter of the League of Women Voters, thanked the county's more than 400 poll workers. This bill would be a first step towards retaining poll workers across the state. Poll workers are critical to ensuring our democracy runs smoothly and ensuring our elections are secure and accessible for all registered voters. We look forward to a future where they are compensated appropriately 
for the work they do every election cycle. McDonald says a poll worker shortage is nothing new, but... What's new is the penalty for people actually stepping up and serving the public. McGrath, with the State Board of Elections, says another issue is standardizing pay for poll workers. It's up to the governor to sign that uh, one way or another, but... Um, Pay for poll workers does vary across the state. Um, certainly we want to know that our poll workers are being compensated for their time, um, and we want to recruit as many as possible. Uh, we appreciate the legislature's um, proactive stance on this. I have not personally seen anything specific about the, the, um, the star exemption being a, a hindrance. Governor Hochul's office says the Democrat is reviewing the legislation. Election day is Tuesday, November 7th. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Alexander Babby. to the Legislative Gazette, program about New York state government and politics. I'm David Gustina. This week, I sat down with New York State Comptroller Tom DiNapoli to talk about all things financial in New York state, including the state's unique financial relationship and the latest moves he's made with Israel. We have a long history being the state that is the number one purchaser of Israel bonds. So no surprise that with everything going on there and we had the opportunity to invest even more, we were ready, willing and able to do it. And I should point out, David, that those are investments with pension fund money. And we do it not just because of that bond that you very appropriately described between New York and Israel, but we get a good return and a safe return. And that's why we've had a long history of investing in Israel. Beyond Israel bonds, we also have other investments in Israel, uh, private equity investments, investments in Israeli companies. Now, our investment exposure in Israel is about $1.5 billion. And again, done because we get a good return for the pension fund. But certainly the situation that you, you know, painfully described is horrendous to anybody of good spirit. The kind of brutality the murders inflicted by the terrorists, there's just no excuse for it. There's no explanation for it. And as you point out, it was Hamas terrorists. It's very important for us to distinguish between you know, the Palestinian people and the terrorists. And sometimes in the heat of everything, we sometimes conflate all of that. This is about Israel having to defend itself right now against the Hamas terrorists and making sure that what happened will not happen again. So I think anybody with, with half a heart has to feel for those who lost loved ones, I'm very concerned, as we all are, about the hostages. Many of them are Americans as well. And I'm very proud of how President Biden has stood very forcefully and very clearly in support of Israel's right to defend itself. You know, our governor also has spoken out very clearly on this. So, you know, I know in the streets there's different opinions, but count me on the side that says Israel has a right to defend itself. No excuse for what happened. And that strong bond that you described will uh, always be there between New York and Israel. 
again, with the reminder that no one wants to see innocent people, civilians, right. children without food or water, homes wrecked, people killed. And again, if you're a human being, I don't think you want to see any of that. My only other question would be, Tom, if there is a ground invasion into Gaza and, you know, we see the bombings that are going on, obviously that's a huge economic impact, right? And then the question would be, who pays for it after it's destroyed? Well, you know, that is such an important question that I don't know that anybody's really focused on what, you know, what, how, do you, how do you do the rebuilding afterwards? And, and the ripple effect. I mean, it's not just the economic disruption that may happen, you know, between the Israeli economy and to the extent that there is an economy in, in, in Gaza. Uh, but what about the ripple effect? We see other countries now starting to line up, have issues, right. uh, demonstrations, oil, obviously, in terms of the Middle East is a big uh, concern. Uh, what happens with Iran? They've been doing a lot of saber rattling, uh, you know, the potential for this to involve not just Israel and Hamas, but a much broader uh, conflict, including, you know, possibly an armed conflict, is uh, terrifying. I mean, I, and I'm so glad you said, uh, appropriately so, it's always the innocents, right? The, 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 the civilians that get caught up in this, that uh, uh, we, we have to feel for them on, on all sides. But, but the potential for it really exploding in terms of an economic impact on us here in this country and globally at a time where we know the global economy has, has been, you know, slowly coming out of the COVID uh, experience, it, you know, the timing uh, is not good at any level. So let's hope that you know, whatever is going on behind the scenes, and we don't know, uh, there are discussions, there are negotiations. There's, first of all, a serious attempt to bring back all the hostages, uh, reunite them with their families, and then to figure out how uh, the, you know, the with Israel having to do what it's got to do, but that, you know, this not be a drawn out, broader war situation. And then what do you do with Gaza? I mean, that's, it's really been an issue long delayed to deal with. But after, you, you know, after you see already, you know, what's happened so far on the bombings is what is the plan? Is there a plan? Who do you talk to? Uh, I guess, David, uh, you know, the issues we deal with at the state level seem challenging enough. Uh, I don't envy those at the federal and international level that are trying to deal with these issues. But the loss of life is the, the brutality. It's just, it's the year 2023. It's yeah. like we're living in medieval times or even before medieval times. The level of inhumanity is just shocking, just shocking. Yeah, and in an era, 2023, when these things are easily seen through social media and the proliferation of technology that allows yeah. us to see the most horrific acts imaginable. Yeah, and even the, the things that perhaps aren't done with any purpose, you know, the the headlines of the hospital, right, in Gaza, yeah. and both sides <laughs> blaming the other. But hundreds of people were killed. Let's not lose sight of that. So it's what you said before. It's the innocent lives that get impacted, and our hearts break for everybody that loses loved ones in such a horrendous situation. No question. We're speaking with the state controller of New York, Tom DiNapoli. I know we got a little afield, but it speaks to the issue of our day, and it does directly impact New York State. Yeah. Now let's talk about another thing that impacts New York State, unlike a lot of other states, which is Wall Street and yeah. the profits that we get there. I know there's another report out. What are we, $13 billion down? What does that mean? What it means in the short run is that, you know, in the years 
2020, 2021, when we really saw outsized profits from Wall Street that were really, you know, returning to pre-pandemic levels of profitability. So for the first half of the year, you know, I should point out, profits were down 4.3%. The profits were at $13 billion, but down from the same period last year. And we saw last year, 2022, down from 2021. But the important news is that Wall Street is still making money. At this point, they've actually been adding jobs. We hope that that will continue as you head towards the end of the year. Sometimes some of the firms will downsize as a way to keep you know their profits up. But this is why we always point out the importance of the securities industry to us. The tax revenue that comes from the profits and from the bonuses and the income that people make in these high-paying jobs on Wall Street, it accounts for about 27% of the tax revenue that comes to New York State that then pays for you know all the other programs we care about, education, healthcare, all the important services. So you know I always say, however you feel about Wall Street, love it or hate it, it's a very important part of the revenue picture for New York City, even more so for New York State because of our heavy reliance on the personal income tax. So we want Wall Street to be profitable at a sustainable level. We want New York to continue to be the global capital of finance. So yeah, although the numbers are down compared to last year, certainly down compared to you know the highs of 2020 and 2021, we're really back at a level of profitability that we saw pre-pandemic. So if I could use the phrase normalizing, I would say the profit levels are normalizing. But again, Given this economy, and we see the volatility in the stock market, could it go in a more negative direction? Possibly. That's why we have to continue to monitor it very, very carefully. And it certainly will have an impact as we head into next year's budget negotiations, which is, as you know, we've been pointing out on past discussions with you, David, it's going to be a tougher budget cycle next year. And part of it is, you know, the Wall Street tax revenue not being as strong as it had been in more recent years. Yeah, but we're hearing about the Medicaid part of it. We're hearing about, what was it, $10 billion? In, in the next coming year or so. And, you know, your Republican colleagues on the other side are citing you for sharing this economic news as the reason for their criticism of the Democrats. You know, you're not doing a good job. Look at what the controller's saying. Yeah. Well, look, you know, we have to call the numbers as we see them. You're right. So it's over $9 billion gap for next year, grows to closer to $14 billion after that. You know, we also put out our monthly, what we call our cash report, how much revenue is coming in, what kind of spending is going on. You know, in our most recent report, we are actually ahead ahead of the projections as to where we thought we would be at this point in the budget cycle. However, and this is the big caveat, revenue is down about 13% compared to last year. And the projections that we have were updated over the summer. They are much lower than the projections upon which the budget was put together, you know, the end of April, the beginning of May. So it's true, we're ahead of where we thought we would be, but those are much lower projections. There's no question the revenue is down compared to last year. And that's what is accounting for the out-year gaps. You know, we, we went through a period because of economic recovery, because of all the money that came from Washington, let's not forget that, uh, we we were in good shape. We actually were projecting balanced budgets for the foreseeable future. And, and you know, the legislature in this year's budget, before the numbers went down, made some big spending commitments in appropriate areas, you know, school aid and more money for mental health and child care, all, all important services. But we have a different reality now. You know, so as we look to next year and before you know it, Actually, in November, we start to put out estimates, uh, you know, for next year's budget. And, of course, the governor will put her budget out, you know, the end of January, beginning of February. It's going to be a different budget picture. And I do hope legislators, both sides of the aisle, will understand, and I think the governor understands this, we're going to have to be much more careful about what our priorities are going to be. And from my perspective, David, you know what we do. You follow it. You report.
report on it, the audits that we do. You mentioned Medicaid. Yeah. We've, we always find opportunities for savings and cost efficiency that never get implemented. There are ways also to spend money more wisely. It's not just a question of adding or, you know, or cutting services. Uh, you know, let's be smarter about how we're spending money. Uh, our, our resources are not unlimited. Those tax dollars come from hardworking New Yorkers' pockets, so we need to be mindful of that. But it's, I think it's going to be a much more challenging budget climate. And again, depending on the global situation and, and our own, look, you know, we talked about the world situation, but look what's happening in Washington. We have our own dysfunction in our own country. How, how do we not have a government organized in the House of Representatives when we have all of these these big issues looming out there? I mean, that's that's going to hurt. What if there's a government shutdown and, and given some of the folks that potentially would be the speaker. I'm concerned about that. That would really set us all backward and have certainly have a direct impact on New York State revenues and, and New Yorkers. That's New York State Comptroller Tom DiNapoli. Listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustina. The Adirondack Council has issued its annual State of the Park report card on actions that have impacted the six million acre area of northern New York. The Legislative Gazette's Pat Bradley with details. The report traditionally provides thumbs up or down for actions taken by the state legislature, governor, attorney general, local governments, state agencies, and the federal government. This year, the Adirondack Council provided more positives than negatives overall. Spokesman John Sheehan says that's in part because the report's theme, Strongest Together, illustrates their increased collaborations. We spent most of our time working in coalitions with community groups and with other environmental organizations. And the success that we had was pretty spectacular this year. I think that the cooperative effort, while that can be a challenge to keep it together, really paid off and it was something that assisted the park in many ways. One example, Sheehan notes, was the long-awaited release of the Road Salt Task Force report. We've been reliant upon the coalition of local government support that we've had in this case, because when things got tough with state agencies, we were able to rely upon our colleagues to help us make it clear that the state had an obligation to make this work. We also did some work on the federal level with national ambient air quality standards and had help from a cadre of national and international organizations that helped us get the attention of both Congress and the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. Protect the Adirondacks Executive Director Peter Bauer has not yet read the council's report, but he too notes there have been some positive developments in forest preserve management. He adds that there are some critical challenges. Some of the key challenges is continuing to reform the management of the forest preserve by the Department of Environmental Conservation and the Adirondack Park Agency. We need these agencies to really uphold and obey the state land master plan. We need these agencies to keep the constitutional forever wild protections front and center in forest preserve management. Also, how are they going to deal with climate change impacts in the park under the state's Climate Leadership and Community Protection Act, 
and then park-wide. Uh, affordable housing is a major issue. The State of the Park report includes 10 priorities for the coming year, including clean water, defending forever wild, and securing federal funds for clean air and water monitoring. The Adirondack Council also plans to start work on what they say are first-in-the-nation initiatives. The first is a comprehensive study of how climate change has affected Adirondack Lake ecosystems. Sheehan says the second implements a state-approved Timbuktu Summer Climate and Careers Institute, which will bring New York City students to the Adirondacks. We are trying to bring a focus by youth to the Adirondacks, and one of the ideas has been to create a workforce development plan that includes getting credentials and training to people who might not ever get to the Adirondacks otherwise, but who have the skills and the talent and the interest to do the work. A link to the Adirondack Council State of the Park report is at wamc.org. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Pat Bradley. You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustina. Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, or RPI, in Troy, has become the first university in the world to house a quantum supercomputer. The Legislative Gazette's Samantha Simmons was there and filed this report. Friday's celebration at the Experimental Medium Performing Arts Center unveiled the IBM Quantum System 1. The college says the $150 million investment has the potential to increase students' and researchers' capabilities and solve problems relating to healthcare, sustainability, artificial intelligence, and national security. Quantum computers work by using quantum mechanics to process information and function as a scientific tool to explore problems. The public-private partnership is aided by RPI graduate Curtis Prem, who co-founded global corporation NVIDIA, a graphic processor, mobile technology, and desktop computer manufacturer. Prem says quantum is more promising than other advanced options. I'm not going to bet on AI, which feels like, you know, the dot-com boom at this point, but it's like we have to have a different technology. RPI President Marty Schmidt says the technology will be the foundation of a new IBM quantum computational center. This is RPI's equivalent of skating to where the puck is going to be. Schmidt says he expects a brief learning curve while trying to fully understand the capabilities of the computer. First, we need to determine what types of problems are best suited for a quantum computer. We believe that application space is vast and will include fields like drug discovery, modeling and predicting new materials, and financial risk modeling. But we need to explore these areas now so that when we are ready for the higher-powered quantum computers, when they emerge, we can leverage that. But in addition, we need to integrate quantum computing into our curriculum so that we are graduating students armed with the skills to utilize these powerful quantum computers in the future. Schmidt says the supercomputer should be online by January and cloud computing services are already available. 
The computer will be powered by a 127-qubit IBM Quantum Eagle processor that IBM says can perform utility-scale calculations. Schmidt explained how the computer works. The pulse tube cryocooler and the mixing chamber that brings the quantum processor to the operating temperature of 0.015 Kelvin, colder than the temperature of outer space. Since molecular mo motion stops at zero Kelvin, the cold allows the qubits, which is the basic unit of information in a quantum system, to maintain their quantum state. Towards the bottom of the chandelier is the quantum processor chip, which holds the qubits and performs the calculations. Schmidt, formerly provost of Massachusetts Institute of Technology, says RPI has been a leader in new technology, paving a way for engineers, scientists, and inventors. Schmidt says RPI and the Capital Region are likely to become world-leading innovation hubs, a goal of state and federal leaders, including Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. Democratic Congressman Paul Tongo, an engineer by training, appeared in a recorded video. The Chips and Science Act of 2022, which President Biden signed into law last summer, authorizes new investments in core quantum research programs that will encourage transformative and fundamental scientific discoveries. Earlier this year, RPI partnered with semiconductor giant Micron and 10 other universities in the United States and Japan to launch the University Partnership for Workforce Advancement in Research and Development in Semiconductors. The program is meant to build the skilled semiconductor workforce and drive research forward. Schmidt says new students will be attracted by partnerships like Upwards and Advanced Technology. I think the students that are like Curtis that are going to come to RPI because we have a quantum computer and are going to go out and change the world with that knowledge, that's the real inspiration. Senior Vice President and Director of IBM Research Dario Gill says quantum computing has benefits outside of a lab. Gill says putting the technology in the hands of those who can make quantum computing in actuality is key to the growth of the industry. To reach the next plane of what's possible and to truly push quantum computing forward, we will need the expertise of our partners and the global community, including those in academia who are leading the research that has a prescience into the obstacles and opportunities that may present in the future. The IBM Quantum Computation Center will open in the spring. The computer will live in the Voorhees Computer Center, a former chapel beneath stained glass windows etched with the first four doctors of the Latin Christian Church. Furthermore, the computer is to be added to the Curtis Prem Quantum Constellation, a center for collaborative research focused on hiring leaders to support the university's research. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Samantha Simmons. And that about does it for this week's show. The Legislative Gazette is a production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. We had help from the New York State Public Radio Network. You can listen to the Legislative Gazette anytime at wamcpodcast.org or anywhere you get your podcasts. Look for program number 2342 and join us again next week at the same time. For more news on New York State government and politics, for the Legislative Gazette, I'm David Gustina. Support for the Legislative Gazette comes from 
United University professions. Representing 37,000 academic and professional employees at SUNY campuses and teaching hospitals across New York State, Frederick E. Cole, President, uupinfo.org.